All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Let's go back like 30 years. I will do the sad and existentially terrifying math for you. 30 years ago, it was 1994. 1994, looking back, kind of a weird time for rock music. Uh, Grunge had come to a pretty abrupt end. Swedish pop had just started to take over the world. R&B newcomers like Mariah Carey, Tony Braxton starting to do really well. Rock was trying to figure out what it was going to sound like in a post-grunge world. Who was going to be the new biggest band in the world? Perfect timing for a certain band from California to come around and change everything. Day and their breakthrough hit Longview. That song was on their classic album Dookie, which made them superstars. An album that again came out 30 years ago. It helped launch pop punk. It took them from basements in California to the main stage of Woodstock, something they told us was a really important gig for them. And it's not just that the albums were big. I mean, I've been thinking about this. It's that they were easy to play. Me and my buddies growing up, we spent a lot of time playing Basket Case and When I Come Around and Longview. They were the songs that taught us how to play our instruments. Here's the thing. Most bands, if they're lucky, get one of those career-defining albums. And then 10 years later, they put out this. Don't want to be an American idiot. Don't want a nation Green Day, an American idiot from the album of the same name, which somehow made the band even bigger. That album turned them into radio superstars, the rare kind of band that played stadiums, that put them up with like U2 and Aerosmith. And now, today, 20 years after that, they're releasing their brand new album. It's called Saviors. And rather than just, I don't know, settling in and making like another Green Day album for the diehard fans, they're taking another big swing, making what they hope is another career-defining record. Take a listen. She's gonna bang her head like that teenage world. She's gonna bang her head like that teenage world. She's gonna bang her head like that teenage world. She's gonna bang her head like that teenage world. She's throwing punches to the... From the brand new album Saviors, out today, that is Green Day in 1981. Big year coming up for Green Day. Big anniversaries of their biggest albums. Uh, a brand new album, Giant Stadium Tour with the Smashing Pumpkins and Rancid. I got to sit down with all three members of Green Day. The guitarist and singer Billy Joe Armstrong, the bassist Mike Durnt, the drummer Trey Cool, 
They came through Toronto. We sat down and talked about it all. I started out by asking Mike about this really big year ahead of him. It's exciting. We got a huge tour coming up, and I think we're, with Saviors, I think we're about to drop, honestly, some of the best music we have ever written and recorded. So um, I'm just excited for people to hear the new record and for us to get on tour. It sounds like that's what I should say, but honestly, that's how I feel. It's exciting. It really is. It does feel like a bit of a statement, the record. Like, it, it, there, there, there's something to it. I, I can't quite put my fingers on it. Billy, how did you want to approach this record? Writing the record, I was coming from just all different angles. Like, I, there would be there would be a time period where I wanted to write just, like, straight-up, like, punk rock songs. That was, like, look, Bono no brains. Uh, there was other songs where I wanted to have like almost like a Britpop thing that was going on with something like uh, Goodnight Adeline and uh, um, Fancy Sauce and Saviors and stuff like that. And then... Um, and I just kind of kept kind of going back and forth. And then we had all of these songs and, and I was I remember just saying, like, let's just get in the studio and let's get let's get out of our, the, the normal places like that we record in Los Angeles and in Oakland. And let's take a trip. Let's go to let's uh, let's go to England. So we went to Rack Studios and we started recording there. Uh, we called Rob Cavallo, and he jumped all over it, wanted to, to rec- uh, record with us again and produce. And and so I didn't really know how it was coming together. I just knew all of these different. And then and then suddenly, like, as we were recording, I think, like, because we, we were in the room together, um, putting the arrangements together and vibing together and, and getting our sound, you can re- all of a sudden you felt something that was, like, cohesive that... Uh, and all of a sudden, we were like, oh, my God, we're making one of the best records we've ever made. It's a weird way, like, we featured ourselves in the record musically. Um, like, my drums sound like me playing them. You know, yeah. his, his guitar and, and Mike's bass and the way that we work off each other. And I think it's because we were in the room together recording this stuff. You yeah. Know? And a funny thing, when we were at Rack Studios, uh, Muse was in the, one of the other rooms. I was like, hey, come, come check our shit out. They came in, and they're like, you guys play together? <laughs> we were like, yeah. They're like, oh, we haven't done that in years. Oh, holy. They're like truly impressed. And uh, that's it's like, oh, that's cool. Like, and then how, we how saw similar? their studio and they had like all kinds of cool tricks. And- I mean, it's rarer and rarer, man. Like every, I feel like every day I talk to more and more bands who like, they might not even record in the same city as each other right. anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like how similar with, for Trey, like how similar, given that you work with Rob in this record who worked on American mm-hmm. Idiot, worked on, on Dookie, how similar was the way you recorded this to the way you guys were recording 30 years ago? Um, pretty similar, really. Right. We, yeah, we, you know, it's like you know, analog mixing board and, you know, microphones in a room and using all the, the stuff that we're good at, which is, you know, I guess playing our in- acoustic instruments and electric instruments. And I don't it just, uh, it just seemed really natural, and, and it, it came together in a really exciting way. Like, we were just fired up. You know, when we recorded records like Dookie and American Idiot, we wanted to record something that 
reflected the way we play live. And like what the what you hear, like when we're playing in a club or an arena or wherever, that you're gonna get that when out of our albums. That's basically the same approach. So it's been the same thing. Has it always been that like that? Did you ever not do that? Um, I mean, we've done a couple of projects where it, they were definitely like uh, we purposely made music that wasn't supposed to be played live. <laughs> really? <laughs> but, but yeah, I think uh, it was. Um, but yeah, this is just one that wanted, you know, we wanted to just make a great rock record, you know, with yeah. like, you know, something we're, you know, we're not playing to tracks. We're not playing to it's just straight up live um, harmonies. And, um, you know, there's like this footage of me, of us playing, I think we're playing on spools in like 1992 and we're somewhere on a farm in, in Minnesota playing in front of a bunch of like punk kids yeah. and jumping around. And it's like, there's only one microphone. So me and Mike were singing harmony together in one microphone and it was like, I, just, I was looking, I was like, God, I, I had two thoughts. I was like, the first I was like, how cool and endearing it is like, and that, that we're singing in the same mic. And then the other thought was, oh my God, I bet Mike had to smell my breath like the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we shared a toothbrush back then. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of like, but a lot of bands, when they get to your level, kind of lose that. They kind of lose that energy of all of all playing together. It's great that you can still have it, you know what I mean? I think, again, it's about being in the room with us. We have a certain thing um, when we get in a room together. And even when we're just playing quietly and structuring a song or working on it, I can hear what Trey's doing with his kick drum. I can hear what's going on with the snare. And I can hear Billy emoting a, a vocal, or if we're just playing a, a riff, not even right, thinking about structuring a song or anything, we're just playing a riff, there's a certain feel to it. If you play it enough in a room together, you're going to know what to do yeah. if you're doing it right. Yeah. You know? And even paying attention to the lyrics, too, like helps like me and Mike get a groove, too, like knowing like kind of where Billy's at with the song, what, what he's trying to say, like, let's be in that mood with him. Musically, I mean, if it, I mean, it's we're that into it. Like we just, we really just threw our, everything we had into it. I mean, lyrically, that's really interesting because the, the, I found this record really interesting lyrically, Billy. I mean, on, on "Strange Days Are Here to Stay," there's a great line: "Strange days are here to stay ever since Bowie died. It, it hasn't been the same." song called Living in the 20s, which talks about um, school shootings and uh, like a sex with robots and AI. And it, it just, every, it's, it, these songs felt very reflective of the very kind of dystopian world that a lot of us feel like we live in. How did you approach this record lyrically? How do you see your responsibility as a songwriter at a, at a time like this? Um, well, I, uh, a lot of it was just kind of like everything was just sort of written from it takes a lot of time to for one thing so it's like trying to take everything line by line 
instead of just like one big, uh, uh, especially when you're writing stuff that's topical or political. I, I, I wanted it to come from the heart just as much as like a love song. You know? what, do you, what do you mean? Um, like well, line by line. Like. Well, line by line, I just want to, you know, you want it to be smart, you yeah. know, and thoughtful. Um, so it, it's like, it's easy to, to sing songs, a song like, you know, when you're, you know, young and saying smash the state. It's like, yeah, I believe that kid. You yeah. know, do I believe the 50-year-old man that's going to say smash the state? You know, it's like, I think when you get older, the world, it gets a lot more complex and nuance and like what's going on and i think as time goes on your you know your uh your views change and um so i was just writing you know i think i you know a song like living in the 20s i was writing about how, like like it was a lot of like things going on at that time where it was QAnon and uh, the insurrection and and all this stuff and so i was just sort of trying to write almost like a coming from a lyrical collage of what was going on. And, uh, you know, like the American dream is killing me, I think is, there's no such thing as like what I would consider the American dream anymore. There's no, you know, because it means so many, it's been broken down and means so many different things to different people. I mean, you know, ask Native American people like what the American dream means to them. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then there's like, uh, you know, or uh, it's like, you know, my parents who, you know, who come from very, like, uh, you know, humble working class backgrounds. My father was a truck driver and a teamster, and my mother was a waitress. Yeah, and but they were able to afford a home. Yeah, for their kids. Yeah, that was in the seventies. Can't do that anymore. Yeah, you know. information that's a jig a little of the american dream is killing me by green day off their brand new album saviors which is out today you're in the middle of my conversation with all three members of the band green day i mentioned this before but 2024 marks the 40th anniversary of their breakthrough smash album dookie and that's where we pick up our conversation how that record changed everything why it still means so much today here's more of my conversation with billy joe mike and trey of green day was it last week you guys did that surprise kind of pub gig? Yeah, yeah. Where you played a lot of the old songs. Um, I have a bunch of questions about it, and they all kind of have to do with the in- impact I could tell that some of that old music had on people. So as I mentioned, it's the 30th anniversary of Dookie, which is crazy. Um, Mike, I think you saw people who were who were there in their 20s and, and 30s and, and 40s, and I'll, I'll count myself in this, who that record sort of became generational to them. What were your hopes for the record when you made it? And when did you start to figure out that, or did you start to figure out that this record is meaning a lot to a certain generation of people? First off, when Duke, when we recorded Duke, we, wanted, we just wanted to make a record that would be around for a long time, that it would just last the test of time. We wanted to make a, a record that we could go look back on 20 years from then and go, we're really proud of this record. These are great songs. And it was recorded, hopefully recorded, to capture us in a way that would still be listenable a long time from then and not be dated 
So that was a conscious effort from us. It was like you knew that you didn't want to make a record that sounded Absolutely. like 1993. Yeah. Oh, wow. We actually yeah. talked about it a lot. I mean, because yeah. we, we knew sonically certain records had, you listen to them, you go, yeah, that was recorded in the 70s. Yeah, yeah that was yeah, recorded yeah, in the yeah, 60s. Yeah. We just wanted to capture Maximum Green Day at the time, whatever that was in the studio we were in. And you know, we took our time and recorded other things, which with the 30-year anniversary, we dropped some demos yeah. from then and stuff. Yeah. Um, but because we wanted to learn this new way of recording on nicer equipment, if yeah. you will. And then, um, but really didn't understand how much it meant to people, you know, because we didn't really look back for a long time. Um, right. You know, fast forward yeah. 10 years later, we do American Idiot. And then we realized this, this is a whole different generation of people, get, or kids and people in general of all ages getting into us. Um, but it starts to show itself when people go, yeah, I bought, you were my first record. Yeah. And you can look at them and go, all right, okay, cool. Well, you were uh, eight because you're 18. Or you can almost guess their age. And then 10 years later, you're going, oh, well, you must have been you know, 18 when you got American Idiot because now you're 28. Or, yeah. And I don't know. I think Saviors could be that next you know, era of Green Day. I really do. It's funny to look at the articles around. Like, I read these articles from 94 last night, right when Dookie came out. I read this article in NME, like the British music magazine, and it said something like, uh, it said something like, well, that Dookie is out and people seem to really like it. They're being called the next Nirvana. Um, the uh, They're being called the next Nirvana. They're packing crowds. They're about to play Woodstock 2 this summer. And time will tell whether that will be the thing that kind of makes their career. Trey, I thought that was a really interesting thing to read before that show. Yeah. Did you feel what like what are your memories of the of the moments of that show? And did it feel like that that was accurate? Like that was sort of a moment of an inflection point for you guys? I mean, I like what Mike said too. Like we kind of had our ears pinned back, and we we're in a new town every day. We kept like just playing and playing and playing and we didn't really reflect back on things but we did um like we kind of like said oh when are we going to go back in the studio and make insomniac like we, we yeah. let's make another record <laughs> so it's um i you know, also uh kind of stayed away from reading um articles about us because it's you know if it's good it'll get to your head if it's bad it'll piss you off so yeah 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 yeah, you know, yeah so it kind of kind of shut that part of my brain off. And then other parts of my brain started shutting off also <laughs> through the years. Yeah, yeah, that'll happen too. Yeah. Bill, you were laughing when I said that, that this article said that if they play Woodstock 2, it's really going to happen for them. Oh, I just get a smile on my face every time I think about when we played Woodstock. It was just, I don't know. I, I think about it, how it just turned into the big mud fight. And uh, <laughs> for some reason, like, we were... What a lot of bands, I think, would have thought as a bad situation, we turned into a triumphant situation. You know, it was just so. And I love that we have a whole track called that that is on the 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 live record for Woodstock and it's called Shit Show. Yeah, and it's just like it's just our our basically the sound of instruments falling apart because of mud. You know, so. But uh, no, it was just that. That was, uh, I knew after that, that something, because at the time it was like, that's where it was like pay-per-view. You could, so people could watch it at, at home. Yeah, I remember would, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. so like, 
and so many people watched it. And I remember it was a bit upsetting to my mother a little bit because I pulled my pants down <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, dur during the show. And, um, but you had a feeling that like, like we were, it, life was gonna change after that show. Really? I think it did. You had this feeling that life was gonna I, change? I think so. I think if we felt it, yeah. We sort of knew right after because we jumped right back on to the um, the Lollapalooza tour. Right, you guys and were already on. Kids were just yeah. rushing security, and uh, we were opening the tour, and you had thousands of kids rushing security and packing, packing the place, and. Every day they're sort of yelling at us about it. We're like, I can't help it, man. It's just, it is what it is. But um, you could tell things were different. And you got your teeth knocked out, didn't you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Ruggedly handsome anyway. Yeah, I think so. That, that, that was my next question. Um, when, when, you, when it came time, well, actually, hold on. Before, before we move on, and I don't know how we're doing for time, but I'm going to ask this anyway. When I watched the people sing Basket Case back to you at that show in London, I saw each of them individually have this moment where they could like sort of relate to the lyrics themselves, these kind of kids in their 20s and 30s. But that was a long time ago for you, Billy. Can you still relate to that guy who wrote those songs? Yeah, absolutely. I think a song like Basket Case was like about having like a lot of anxiety and panic attacks and um, sort of feeling like you're, you're losing your mind. And I mean, that's... That sounds like a the the Disney ride from hell that it's an all ages thing, yeah. <laughs> you know. So it's uh, um, yeah. I I mean, I definitely I think it's like like you sing it every night, and I, I think some people might think it might get like uh, just um, like oversaturated or dulled down in your own. Uh, but I mean, it's I like. You know, every time we play it live, I'm, I'm, I think, I think to myself, thank God for this song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that song at, at that time that when that song came out, you know, kids singing along to that song, whether you, whether it's nowadays or then, you gotta think nobody was talking about mental health back then. Yeah. And so that song was re something relatable for a kid that you know might have been feeling the same way. Yeah, that's true. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those melodramatic fools, neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it. Sometimes I give myself the creeps. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me It all keeps adding up I think I'm cracking up And I'm just paranoid I'm just I was, um, I was at like a, I was at a regatta not that long ago And, uh, this is true, I was at a regatta not that long ago The regatta in St. John's and they had like a kids rock thing where like kids could get up and, and you know, they were obviously working on songs throughout the year. And these kids who were like 12, 13 years old in 2023 at the time were still playing Basket Case. They were still playing that song. I, I mean, it's like a folk song. Green Day's 
Basket Case from the 1994 album Dookie. Coming up after the break, we get into their other big anniversary this year. It's been 20 years since American Idiot. More of my conversation with Green Day coming up. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Power, you're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Dirnt, and Trey Cool from the band Green Day, who have a new album out today called Saviors. What you're hearing right now, though, is not from that album at all. It's called Jesus of Suburbia from their world conquering record, American Idiot. You might remember that record got turned into like a big Broadway musical. That album is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. That was the album I mentioned this earlier, took them from being, you know, a, a great rock band with a really landmark album to a stadium rock band, like your U2s or your ACDCs. That's where we pick things up. Here's the rest of my conversation with Green Day. Like, when I was reading about American Idiot last night, it was really interesting that you had put out this, like, greatest hits record, and you started to feel maybe a little bit old, and and um, you, you started building in, like, band talking time into, into rehearsal time. Where was the band 20 years ago when you guys were making American Idiot? I think... When like when we really started to think about like making something, we wanted to make like a monumental record in our career that like w- that was really ambitious and that was like this is going to be you know like you, know, you get stars in your eyes and you you know every band wants to have like their Sergeant Pepper type of moment yeah. or, or whatever and and um, and I think we were in the studio where we had access to the studio every every day in Oakland and so we just at that point we 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 did start ta- like like let's talk about what we want to do let's see what we what we want to do and the two songs that really came out of that was the song American Idiot and Homecoming uh which Homecoming was like in its original version was like it was it felt like this sort of mini opera. And so we didn't know exactly where we what we wanted to do, but we knew that we were on to something. And I remember sending those two songs to Rob Cavallo and Rob was like, this is it. This is it. Because he's so ambitious and he gets really like you know, that childlike wonder about like, like we're gonna make something that is like, you know, an album of the ages. And it's like, uh, you know, that gets really <laughs> exciting. And you're like, like, so we just started thinking about conceptually where, who this American idiot is. And it, all of a sudden it became about these characters like St. Jimmy and what's her name. And, and then it got into, uh, uh, God, uh, Jesus of Suburbia. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, 
And that was really, we were like, oh my God, we're making that kind of record that we've always wanted to make. Um, and um, so it was like, I don't know, like, like, like just one of those moments where we're like, we get to make this concept record. Did it feel like it worked? Like, did it feel like, wow, we, we kind of started a second life for the band? Yeah, it was, I mean, we were like hanging out like every day and um, some days we'd come in and like, like Billy and Rob would be in there like, just like, doing shit and like hey, and then we go, okay what's going on in there I don't know like, like the windows are steaming up man this is cool and then, <laughs> come check this shit out like, oh yeah well it, it also started branching over into other things I remember like there were certain things that like Mike would show up and like be like he would show up in like these different like fashion like the clothes the way yeah. that things started to change and it was like Okay, this is everything started to come and started to incorporate into what we were doing. And it was like, then, you know, that's like with the black shirt and the red tie yeah. and, yeah. and things like that. It was just like. There's a full, sort of a swagger that happened when you, we were created, like our gang felt like it was firing on all cylinders in the studio. But there's a side of it too that, like, you know, we didn't know whether it was going to sink or swim. We just wanted to make this, this record that we thought would be our monumental record, right? Yeah. We finished the record. And we had to have a moment where we just sat with each other. Uh, we literally finished the record. We met at the studio again. I remember we went up to this little crow's nest area in the studio, climbed up in this little area and sat down and just said, look, I don't give a shit what anyone in the world thinks about this record. I, uh, we love this record. And let's just bottle that feeling. And we said to ourselves, don't read any press. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care what the world thinks. Of, which, by the way, was the stupidest thing we could have done. Because the one time in our life, we probably should have read all the yeah, press. Yeah, you take it really, really, really good. But yeah, yeah, right. it was just bottling that feeling of... Be proud of what you've done. You know, who cares what other people think about it? Because don't let them in this world that we've created, what we were proud of. And protect each other. Yeah, protect your child. Yeah. That album. It kind of, I mean, it really did work out. I mean, I I remember as an outsider, like, who was really into Nimrod and really into Dookie, just watching this band that I love, like, take off and start start playing arenas. So I guess, like, I got a rap suit. I'm I'm getting the rap. But, like, I think what I find interesting about this whole thing is that, like, I think... I think the way that you guys get talked about is wrong sometimes. Because I think people talk about you as, like, people sometimes frame you as a, as a punk band and they say, oh, what happens when a punk band gets really, really big and starts doing arenas? I don't actually think that's the right way of thinking about your band. I think what's really interesting about you guys is that any band that gets the arena level of, like, American Idiot would be okay stopping. Like, a lot of bands at that point would be like, you know what, we did it, let's go play Greatest Hits for the rest of our lives. We all know bands who've done it. We don't have to say them right now. But you're sitting here right now talking to me about Savior saying, we want this to be the biggest record of our career. Can someone tell me where that comes from? Like, what's what's going on with this band? I, I think, like, we just, we still care about the kinds of songs that we write and and how much effort that we put into it and, uh, make, you know, and trying new things at the same time is like coming together and, and just writing just like a badass songs. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, uh, you can get older, you can get old, just don't stop caring. You know, that's where I, I come from when it comes to making music. Um, and those are my favorite artists are the ones that still care about what they're putting out. And it's like, and, and not going through the through the motions. So for us, that's kind of what 
Green Day is about. These are the best of times, twisting and borrowed times. These are the loneliest of Green Day's new album is called Saviors. It is out today. Very cool to get a chance to talk to Green Day. I was, um, I had the same experience of seeing them in real life that I, uh, that you have sometimes when you see really famous people. It's just like, are they real? Like they are they are they real? Are they holograms? And they were real. They were really lovely, kind, wonderful people. Uh, their new album is called Saviors. I mentioned that. It's already it's out today. They're heading out on a massive tour this summer with Smashing Pumpkins and Rancid coming to stadiums near you. And you can watch that video uh, of that if you want on YouTube. The other episode we have up today is my conversation with the winner of Canada's Drag Race this year, Venus, who is the first Indigenous drag queen to win uh, Canada's Drag Race. She talks a lot about how she incorporates her heritage into her drag. She talks a lot about how her mom supported her from day one in her journey with drag. And uh, she talks about, my favorite part is like what she hopes the win means. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.